This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 310. Today, AC and I talk about a slow news day, recorded live July 8th, 2019. Are you being asked repeatedly to integrate different business systems in ever narrower timeframes and with increasing process complexity? What if you could standardize the way you build these business processes so your team are focusing on higher value tasks versus the nuts and bolts of running the processes and integrations? Nintex can make it happen. With a Nintex platform, workflows from person to person, system to system, to the cloud and back. Got a custom system you want to connect with? No-code extensions let you plug into systems simply and easily using REST and Swagger. With Nintex, work just flows, so your teams can work smarter, work faster, and be more connected than ever. Try it out free for 30 days at www.nintex.com forward slash try NWC. AC. Hey, man. How you doing? I watered my yard. (laughs) (laughs) It's a slow news, pretty slow news day, huh? (laughs) I weeded my yard. Oh, that's not. I saw a video on Reddit. (laughs) This is, there you go, there's the, uh, now we're gonna go down the rabbit hole. I saw a video on Reddit of an automated weeder and it was like a big farming machine with six people with these like weird kind of like things almost look like um chiropractor tables that was stretched out behind it and they were suspended just barely off the ground about probably two to three feet off the ground and people were lying face down on these tables as the thing slowly drove over the ground and it, they were just manually picking weeds out of a farm huh i need one, use one do you use one of those yeah <laughs> no but i need one i just need one a little bit closer to the ground to put the kids in <laughs> hamstrings are crying out for help (laughs) anyway so fourth we had fourth of july weekend here in the u.s kind of weekend ish long long weekend for most people anyway yeah so uh lots of barbecuing and uh beer drinking and relaxing and things like that get up to anything fun or was it all just uh hanging out we were very chill we usually go watch the fireworks go out to the beach and watch the fireworks and uh earlier in the week found out that my son had uh pneumonia and delightful. yeah, so we, we stayed home and we played board games with my mother-in-law and just chilled out. And I couldn't even grill out because my grill is broken. The top of my grill broke, the front fell off and shattered. <laughs> uh, the old front. Well, what, what, I mean, what part of the front fell off? Why did the front fall off? <laughs> <laughs> we should find the link to that. Yeah, oh, I've, we've seen it. I just wonder how many of our listeners have seen it. Well, it's obviously not designed to fall off, is it? Just, <laughs> well, what happened? Well, the front <laughs> fell off, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. That's um, a great skit. Speaking, speaking of the front falling off, we are finally, finally getting around to moving our website for the podcast off of Orchard and into Hugo, which is a static site generator, Mm. which, um, I don't know, some background for those who are not familiar with how our current site is built. It's all running in Azure, and it's running on a multi-tenant version of Orchard that you're running Mm. uh, for your personal site and for our podcast, right, which is which has been great for the last few years. But there are a few issues with it. One, it's it's temperamental from time to time. (laughs) It's quite... Like last Friday. <laughs> yeah. It also, now here's, here's a particularly weird one that only impacts podcasters. We've got lots of episodes. We've got like 310, including this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, the XML feed that iTunes and all those sorts of things ingest can only be, is it one megabyte in size? Mm-hmm. And so we have to remove old episodes from the RSS feed so that iTunes will ingest our XML feed. And so sometimes you'll notice we publish episodes and they go live on the site and then they don't pop up in your podcasting app on your phone. And that's usually because the RSS feed has run out of space, so to speak. And we have to go back and unpublish a whole bunch of episodes to make it smaller. And that sucks for a couple of reasons. One, it's a manual thing that we've got to do. And so we forget to do it. And then two, you can't get access to the old episodes via the podcast RSS or your, your podcast feed, uh, app. Mm. Uh, so we're not able to eliminate number two because that's just a limitation that iTunes pops in. But we do want to get this, the old podcasts back on our site. 
so mm -hmm. indexed by Google and all that sort of stuff, and so that people can listen to them if they want, rather than having to remove them. And so one of the issues we've got with Orchard is it doesn't currently let us do that. It's also quite heavy for what we use it for, I suppose, for want of a better word. Yeah. And we just want a really simple way of pumping out, pumping out a site. So Hugo is what we've landed on. You mm. put us onto this originally. What's interesting is as I've looked at it, we hired a contractor to help us with this just to get some time. And I started looking into the Hugo templating thing. It's really interesting because it's basically the same as Helm charts for generating Kubernetes application definitions, except it spits out static HTML sites, right? And it's all because it's all based on the same template language. It's all based on Go templating language or Go mm. template something rather. I can't remember what they call it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's really interesting because I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is just like building a Helm chart for Kubernetes, but it spits out static sites. And basically it takes your template, takes your content files, and then when you run it, mashes them together and spits, spits out you know, your raw pages. So it's actually not as hard to follow for me because I, I know Helm charts reasonably well. Mm. It's nice too because I mean, it's going, it moves into this model or this pattern of, uh, they're called static site gen. And so the site's not... Today, Orchard is, it's a CMS and it's all dynamic where you've got, well, it's, the code base is very dynamic and it's, this is not a complaint to Orchard, but it's very complex to be able to comprehend and to consume and try and grok and understand how it works. But everything is in, all of our content's in a database, whereas with a static site, all of your content is generally going to be in Markdown. And then, like you said, the results of it is going to all be genned out as just static HTML. And... Our site doesn't have anything dynamic associated with it. And so it's like, let's just use this instead. And when we saw that Azure websites, or sorry, Azure blobs supported static websites like Amazon S3 has for a while, that got announced last summer, we were like, oh man, this is, this is the direction we want to go in. And yeah. I am amazed at how fast the site is. The cool thing is, is that stuff isn't going to break now. I mean, this is a static site. We could take our site, put it on a USB key and run it off the USB key if we wanted to. But yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll, it's super cheap to run. Yeah, I mean, we lose the ability to do like scheduling of posts and stuff, but we're going to try and get kind of sophisticated with that using pushing the content to a Git repo and having Azure DevOps gen the site maybe on a schedule and push those changes out when we need them pushed out. So yeah, no, I think it'll be it'll be good. It'll be a little more technical in terms of you know the publishing pipeline. It's not just check boxes and buttons, but we'll mm -hmm. get there. So yeah, no, it's and we've got we've got a version of the site in testing, and it's screamingly fast. And even without any CDN or any like, I want to put Cloudflare in front of it, right? So we get a bunch of auto goodness mm -hmm. and things like that, and SSL and all that sort of stuff. But even without that, even just serving it from blob storage, it's just screaming. It really is. It, it's amazing how fast it is. So I'm, yeah, we're we're offloading this offloading this site from my Orchard instance and. This has been something that we have had on our plate that we've wanted to tackle, I think, for a solid two years. <laughs> and we keep setting milestones for ourselves. Like, all right, when we're at this conference, let's sit down and spend some time. Let's design what we want to do. Okay, cool. All right, in the next two weeks, we're going to do this. And then we don't do it. Yeah, and we get busy with our, with our day jobs, so to speak. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So this one is, uh, we finally said, screw it. Let's just find a contractor to do it. Appreciate you taking the lead on that. And finding how hard it was, too, to get an export of all of our content out of Orchard. And if, if there's an Orchard developer on here, it's just so you know, we also built a custom module to be able to support podcasting. This was, and you're like, oh, you know that there's already one there. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we built this five years ago. And we didn't factor in the whole export stuff. So trying to find the data, there's a massive query that I had to write to go, like, put everything together. And I was like, but you know what? It's a one-time brute force kind of thing. Yeah. So we'll get there. So... um Hopefully, you'll notice our site go a bit quicker. Yes. It's not like that today. We're getting there. Yeah. I was, what do you think, like a, like a month or so? Yeah. If that will be like a month. And then hopefully within about two or three weeks after that, you'll see my blog get a lot faster too, because yeah. I'm going to take that same contractor and be like, hey, come over here, man. I need you to do the same thing to my site. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're getting there. Could have done it ourselves if we had the time. Looking at Hugo looks really Actually, really cool. Like, it's very developer-friendly, obviously. It's I mean, it, it's basically built for developers. You wouldn't want to give this mum to, to go use for blogging. But it's really nice cross-platform, super fast, easy to use, 
just Markdown and YAML, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're moving on to Hugo. So um, finally get around to that project. <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. Seeing the site up and running is a huge improvement. And we're getting there. That'll be the fun part. We have to decide which one of us is going to be the one to educate my wife on uh, how to create a new episode because she's the one that we record the stuff and then we hand it off to her and then she works with our producer and she's like, all right, let's make sure that he gets the MP3. And then from there she goes and creates the post and all that stuff inside of orchard. And now it's like, all right, guess what? We're going to have to teach you what Git is all about and how this works. Maybe, maybe we might. Anyway, we'll report back on how we, how we crack that nut and make it easy to publish new posts. Yeah. It might be you and I for the first couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell her to create the markdown file. And just drop it in their Google Doc or, or the Google Drive, and we'll we'll take it from there for a few weeks. Yeah, the actual the markdown files are pretty straightforward. Yeah, so I'm not expecting it too hard. Anyway, so we've got a slow news day, but we do have some things to talk about. So why don't we push on and hear from one of our fantastic sponsors, and we'll be right back with some news, reviews, and interviews. For those of us familiar with ShareGate, we know they've always been about SharePoint and Office 365 migration. But now that we've all moved to the cloud, like me, you're probably thinking about how to scale your Office 365 to a full self-serve environment without worrying about thousands of groups and teams popping up out of nowhere, AKA Sprawl. That's why the folks at ShareGate developed ShareGate Apricot. It's a solution that helps us automate our Office 365 group governance by allowing us to collaborate with users to keep everyone accountable for the things they create. Their super simple to use in-app experience lets us lighten our load by delegating group management responsibilities to users we trust, AKA no more sprawl. Want to get your hands on ShareGate Apricot? Try it free for 30 days at sharegate.com forward slash cloud show. Struggling to reproduce problems in your code base? Successful software starts with Raygun. Raygun provides application performance monitoring, unlike anything you've experienced before, offering greater clarity around how your software is performing for your customers than any other APM provider. Easily detect and diagnose issues impacting end users and monitor every part of your stack in one place. It's time to get back to building great software instead of fighting it. Start your journey to better software quality. Try Raygun free at raygun.com today. Okay, AC, given it was kind of a short week, it's been a pretty slow news week, honestly. Mm. And we're recording this late and we still, it's still been a pretty slow last week or so. But we do have some interesting things to talk to. So why don't talk about, so why don't you kick us off with what's going on in .NET Core land? Yeah, so I found this article, or I stumbled across this article last week. It's from the middle of June, from mid-June 2019. It's from the, the .NET blog, and the title of it is Evolving the Infrastructure of .NET Core. And it really goes, I love these posts. I absolutely love these posts. What it does is it doesn't talk so much about, you know, what can .NET Core do? Why is it great? What's the new features and all that stuff? Mm. It's more or less sitting down and saying, hey, how do you guys build it? What's it like to build something like that? What does your infrastructure look like? And what they do is they, they go through an entire history of what they did initially and how things changed and what they're doing today that really dives into it. So like, let me just, I think a, a good way to understand this is let me just read from like two or three sentences from one part of the history. It says our early, quote, our early infrastructure decisions were made around necessity and expediency. We use Jenkins for GitHub PR and CI validation because it supported cross-platform open source development. Our official builds lived in Azure DevOps called VSTS at the time and Team City used by ASP.NET Core, where signing another critical shipping infrastructure exists. And then they integrated repositories together using a combination of manually updating package dependency versions and somewhat automated GitHub PRs. So what they've done is they go through the entire process of the blog post and they talk about everything that they went through, how they created this shared tooling, a system consolidation, automated dependency flow and discovery. They go through the details of how all of this stuff is set up, how they moved over to Azure DevOps, just how they do the dependencies, how the, what the complexity graph looks like of all the dependencies. It's really cool. I started like, it's one of those blog posts that as you start kind of getting into it, you realize like how deep down the rabbit hole you're going and how... It doesn't apply to anything I'm doing today other than the geek side, just like, yeah. this is really interesting. That's cool. I love it when they publish sort of stuff. 
inside the machine, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I have got one that's going to make you laugh a little bit, cringe a little bit, and poo-poo me a little bit. Oh, <laughs> you're scaring me. There's an interesting article here called from GeekWire that's titled How the Seattle Seahawks Use Data to Win on and off the field. Now, it's debatable whether they're doing that much winning on the field, especially this last this last year, I guess, last couple of years. It's not debatable. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> they speak for themselves, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That said, the article is kind of interesting in that it points out that, I didn't realize this, but the Seahawks were the first NFL team to have like a, an official sports science team within them, mm-hmm. I guess, part of their, which I thought was really interesting. It mm-hmm. started about seven years ago, and now every NFL team is basically doing it. But in a nutshell, the article talks about the types of data they're collecting from players on the field, so where they are on the field and all that sort of stuff, as well as you know off the field around training and nutrition and all that sort of stuff, and how they're using Azure to help them collect, curate, and munch all of that data and things. Hmm. I guess this is you know like the what's the movie Moneyball? Moneyball, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's where it's lots of number crunching and and using data to perform better. It seems like a no-brainer now, but it must have been like witchcraft back then. Yeah, if the, anybody is interested in like the... So the, the whole thing with Moneyball, it was based off a book that was, was a fascinating book and a concept called Sabermetrics or Sabernomics. And it's the idea of applying a statistics to baseball where it, baseball was very much like a, a good old boy kind of... You had scouts that would review watch players and rate them and stuff. And it was always, it was always judgment call based stuff. And this guy, Billy Bean for the Oakland A's sat down and started like looking at the, what makes a player better than another player? And Oakland A's, it all came about, I could go off on a huge tangent on this. I'm going to go off just instead of just a little, um, a little chicane or a bus stop for racing fans. You may get that. Like what they did is they, he looked at it and said, you got teams like the Yankees teams, like the Boston uh, Red Sox who have got these huge budgets Whereas you get the teams like the A's who don't have a huge budgets and they don't ever stand a chance at really competing. And so they had to find a way to be able to compete on a budget. And yeah. so the idea was, and there's a whole thing with baseball, when you draft guys, you have rights to them for a certain amount of time. So the idea is find the best players you can while they're cheap, then let them go make their money with those bigger teams. But then you're going to move on to somebody else. So you're always trying to find the diamonds in the rough and you do that with statistics. So it's really cool. Like it's a really cool movie, and then seeing how they've taken when Moneyball came out or came more publicized, how other sports started doing it. Hockey's doing it. Football's doing it. Like we talked about the Seahawks here, the Baltimore Ravens were one of the leaders in it as well. It's I love this side. I tried to do this with football for a little while, more specifically applying it to fantasy football, and then got more serious in my job. So, <laughs> <laughs> one last thing on this article. Now, this is a real application of data and science for the greater good for the fans at games, we all know is the most important part. Now, this is the most important part of the most important part, okay? This is the real good stuff. So they found with data that they're collecting that people were pissed off that they had to go to one stand for food and a different stand for beer. And they had to do that because even at the food stands, they sold beer, right? But they made a change at the beer stands to sell a more varied type of beer, right? So they had more variations. They had some more craft beers and things. And so it pissed people off because they were having to go to the food stand for food and then have to go to the beer stand and line up again for beer. And so now, now this is really, you know, why AI and data science matters. Now Mm. they've decided to sell those craft beers at the food stands so that you can get your overpriced, bad for you food and your overpriced, bad for you beer at the same time. Well, there you go. But you're at least not wasting your time now. You're doing all the bad stuff at once. Exactly. <laughs> two birds with one stone. <laughs> I'm focused on the important things in life, right? Totally. <laughs> I have a we're post... Covering the important stuff. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. We thought you'd be doing like, we're talking about cloud stuff today. And what are we getting? Money ball and beer and craft beer and food. Football games, yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, AI, data science, sorry. So I have one here about OneDrive. The SharePoint Patterns and Practices team, they announced a new repository under the OneDrive org, or they referenced it, I guess. Microsoft has now provided a bunch of community-based samples that are all related to OneDrive and I guess it's SharePoint Online as well. 
But these samples are, they're authored primarily by a, a SharePoint MVP named Paolo Peosori. I might mess that up, where that are available for you to take a look at. So things like using Delta Query for detecting changes from the Microsoft Graph, building a custom file handler, a OneDrive file picker, using ASP.NET and MVC, a OneDrive file picker with SharePoint Framework, query recently accessed files using the graph, and exploring files in OneDrive from a UWP solution for universal Windows platform solution. So a couple of cool free sam- or samples that are out there that you can go take a look at that are neat. And then one little thing that I want to call out too is that for those of you who are SharePoint developers that are of our listeners, you may be aware that Microsoft does those patterns and practices calls a couple times a month. They have three different calls they do. One of them is monthly, two of them are bi-weekly, and they're all alternating. So there's always a call every month, every week. I guess I can say this without, because we're not on the patterns and practices call. Let's, <laughs> I'll say it like this. The patterns and practices calls are run by Microsoft people who are primarily in Europe. And Europe decides to not work in July. Specifically, Scandinavia decides to not work in July. And people like Vesa, uh, Vesa Yuvenen, uh, Bert Jansen, a couple other ones, they all have gone like MIA. And Well, I shouldn't say MIA. We knew they were going away. But they all have gone on vacation for about a month. And there's nobody to host the calls on SharePoint, or so no, uh, Skype for Business. And so there's no way to start the calls, no way to record the calls. So for the JavaScript and SharePoint Framework Special Interest Group, I volunteered to host two calls at the normal times we usually hold them. One was last week. I guess when you're, when you're getting this episode, you know, one was last week and one is next week. And so if you're interested in, in joining us uh, for a community call, getting the same kind of thing, seeing some demos and stuff, go check out, go to the SharePoint documentation. I think it's aka.ms slash spdevdocs. And then um, you'll see a community section in there. You will find two calls. They're called the summer camp calls. We wanted to make sure that they were not mistaken with or confused with the Microsoft hosted call. So you can check it out uh, if you're interested in joining. Very nice. Yeah. Are you hosting it on Skype for Business or Zoom? The one that works. Zoom. Yeah, Zoom. Gotcha. <laughs> Savage. Like yeah, well, hey, it's whatever works. One you- final one here before we take a quick break. Azure Databox is now GA. Azure Databox, Ooh. I should say, is, in G- is, is gone GA. This is pretty cool. So it's, you know, you get a big suitcase of hard drives and then you upload stuff to it and then you send it to Microsoft and then they put it into Azure for you. Databox Heavy gives you up to one petabyte per order. They call it per order. I don't know what that means, but I guess per big box that shows up. It's pretty cool. Out of that one petabyte, you get 770 terabytes of usable capacity. They obviously have have some capacity for redundancy, I imagine. You know, it encrypts the whole lot using um, AES 256-bit encryption. It's got multiple network connectors. So it's got these 40 gigabit per second Ethernet connectors and four of them, I believe, uh, which is pretty sweet, uh, as well as just regular network connections as well. And so you basically, you, you know, you load it up, you dump stuff on it using SMB or NFS or whatever, and then you send it to Microsoft and then they stick it up into blobs or page blobs, Azure files or managed disks in Azure, which is pretty nice. Hmm. I just laugh at the end. It says, um, Databox Heavy's one petabyte of raw capacity and multiple 40 gigabit per second connectors mean that a data center's worth of data can be moved into Azure in just a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of data. Yeah, it still takes a few weeks. Interesting. And that's available in the EU and the US for the Databox Heavy, the other Databox stuff's available in more regions, but if you're looking to move a lot of datas, this one is probably pretty reasonable. I don't know how much it costs. Do you, out of interest, have you seen? No, I suspect it's not cheap. <laughs> no, and especially if you're moving like a data center, if you're lifting and shifting a data center to the cloud, I guess it's kind of like, to me, it seems, you're going to have a probably a cost savings, but it seems to me it's kind of like when you're, in the market to buy a, an exotic car. And someone's like, yeah, what are you doing? I'm buying a Ferrari. Like, oh yeah, but you know how much the insurance is on that? Like going, yeah, if I'm worried about the insurance, I'm not in the right market. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be expensive, but relatively speaking, it may not be that expensive when you're talking about sunsetting a data center. Yeah, exactly. No, not the down. Scheme of things. Cool. Right. Shall we hear from one of our fantastic sponsors? And we'll be right back. 
A 99.9% SLA means you're protected from power outages, bad patches, natural disasters, and maybe even a dinosaur attack. Does it protect you from yourself though? Avpoint Backup for SharePoint Online provides full fidelity backup and recovery from individual items to entire sites. Avpoint can run backups up to four times a day to ensure your data is secure. Recover any time you want without having to pick up the phone and schedule restore windows. Learn why Avpoint is the Microsoft Cloud expert at www.avpoint.com. All right, I see. While we were on the break, I did a quick look. Databox Heavy's pricing. <laughs> How much is this? Turns out the service fee, which is, it covers one unit, which means you get this thing for 20 days. So you get the box, $4,000, and then 100 bucks every day beyond that. So that's how long you have it to be able to like load data onto it and then send that's, it back. That's the import service fee, yes. And then the standard shipping fee, because they've got to ship it to you, is 1500 bucks. Whoa. Starting from 1500 bucks. Whoa. <laughs> that's a big box. Yeah, it's got to be heavy. That's why they call it heavy. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe marketing folks were like, what do we call this? Well, it's heavy. So let's call it heavy. <laughs> UPS, the first time they go to ship one, UPS is like, yeah, we're going to have to put a special tag on that. What is it? Yeah. We call those heavy. Heavy tags. <laughs> Given it's Washington and, and marijuana's legal here, they're all sitting around super baked going, whoa. <laughs> <Heavy>. <laughs> Curious. Ah. Yes. Crazy bandwidth, though, man. Sending one of those things through the uh, through the mail, right? Nuts. Mm -hmm. Anyway, onwards and upwards. What else you got for us? I got a cool one. We should do these more often. Azure DevOps. They publish uh, when they do a new sprint. They publish an update of here's everything that's included in their sprint. As a sidebar, I wish that my sprints were as productive as theirs are. Apparently, but in Sprint 154 for Azure DevOps. They have a big new release. Uh, I know that not everybody is on Azure DevOps. A lot of companies I'm, I know use Jira from Atlassian. And they now have Azure pipelines for Jira. They are now available in the Atlassian marketplace that's going to allow people to add integration links to Jira issues as work items that have been deployed within releases and allows them to view deployment details directly within Jira. There's also a whole lot of other updates they made, like the Azure DevOps CLI went GA, as far as Azure boards go, work item live reload, work item parent column as a column option, instant search for work items, search for a work item as you type. That's nice. I run into that a lot. And a whole bunch of other stuff too. You can even do auditing inside of Azure repository events as well. There's a lot of really cool stuff here that they've listed out. I just thought we would go ahead and call that out. But there's, a, there's even support for Bitbucket repositories and Azure DevOps projects. Release folder filters and notification subscriptions. It's pretty, they've, they're going, they, a lot of stuff that they've added here. So definitely take a look at this. Cool. How about uh, you? What uh, you got for us? I've got a really sneaky one. So it turns out there was a Chrome, a guy from Google, from the Chrome developer team, who noticed on Stack Overflow that for some reason, Stack Overflow was requesting all sorts of stuff from the browser. So things like checking its audio capabilities, trying to do a bunch of different API calls. And in effect, it was trying to create a digital fingerprint for a unique user. And it turns out that it wasn't Stack Overflow doing it. It was the ad provider that they were putting ads on Stack Overflow using or something similar to that. It basically, oh. it was to do with the ads that were being put on the page. And what's interesting here is, is the background behind it. So you know how people use a bunch of ad blockers and stuff, right? Yeah. Well, people try to get more creative, developers in particular, are trying to get more creative with how they track users because obviously they're being thwarted. And so what a lot of people are doing are trying to create these fingerprints for each user. You know how, it's a good analogy here. Can't think of one off the head. I'll think about one in a second. Hold on. Give me a second. <laughs> oh, it's slow. It's Monday. Uh, so they do things like capture, obviously, what browser you're using and things, but what IP address, what language settings, what version numbers of things you've got, what browser capabilities you have enabled, IP addresses, the whole nine yards. And with enough of those measures, I think they said they're like 200 different things they're looking at. They can create this sort of 
not exactly unique, but very close to unique fingerprint for you as a user that they can then use to correlate with your other movements around the internet, right? If they're in multiple places. And so even if you're using tools to help thwart serving ads from certain places and things, there's a whole bunch of information that's out there that when you visit a website, it can look at to sort of digitally fingerprint you. And it turns out one of these ad servers uh, or these ad networks was doing that, that Stack Overflow were inadvertently being taken advantage of uh, or their users were being taken advantage of by sticking it on their pages. And Stack Overflow in their defense come back and said that they're not selling user data or they're not targeting ads based on this stuff. It's out of their control, but they're, work- they're obviously not okay with it. And they are obviously working to try and avoid that. And there are some sort of sandboxing, browser sandboxing tech that, they, that they're implementing to help avoid some of this stuff. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess it's a similar concept on the fingerprinting. Like when, what is it, doesn't Windows do something with to figure out your license key when based on like your... The hardware. This, yeah. Yeah, like that your, your, um, your motherboard details about like serial numbers on your RAM modules, on your hard drive, video card, and they realize that... Yeah. yeah. Okay, I've got That's, an analogy. Uh-oh, mine sucked. A while back there was, I can't remember which big retailer it was, but sent, sent a flyer to, to a house about, hey, we noticed you're pregnant. Here's some coupons for pregnancy-related stuff. And the household, the head of the household, mother and father were like, no, we're not. We're not pregnant. How on earth did you get this so wrong? And it turns out their daughter was pregnant and that that this retailer had figured it out based on certain buying activity of the members of that household in their shop, right? So, So not like buying a pregnancy test, not that obvious, but things like, I don't know, like I'm going to make this part up, but like pregnant women really love crunchy peanut butter combined with ramen noodles and I don't know, a deck of cards or something. Not all, not to eat, but you know, when people buy certain things, it typically means... so random. (laughs) I just tried to pick random things. (laughs) But there's certain patterns and certain commonality of buying habits that can be led to believe with reasonable confidence that you're pregnant. And so that's kind of like digitally fingerprinting you, right? It's saying... Mm -hmm. If you buy these combinations of things, we've got a 70% chance of being right that you are pregnant or somebody in your house is pregnant. There you go. Is that a similar analogy? Yeah, that's pretty good. If you've got this IP address and these browser functions turned on and you're browsing you know, with this thing and these locations and all that, then 70% confidence, it's still the same person. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe it's not a great analogy, but that's the best one I could come up with. Sorry. It's funny we're going through this because I'm getting ready for our ne- for the next one that I'm going to cover, uh, the next news item. And I'm noticing how well I've been fingerprinted in the last 24 hours. Okay. So let me first start with my news thing. So British Airways has been hit with a record fine, 183 million pounds. Why is this? Well, and what's it for? It's for a data breach. But... The problem is, is that this was my basically one of, one of the first or one of the biggest fines under the new GDPR data protection laws that are in place in the European Union, or that started in the European Union. And there's an article that we have on the BBC that I'll link to that goes in a lot of depth on this. But effectively, someone went in and they hijacked the BBC or the, the uh, British Airways website. And when people were Logging in, they were providing all of their details to some other site, not to British Airways. And it ends up that British, they, after investigation, it's all that British Airways did had a really poor job on network security and all that kind of stuff. And so they got a fine for it. Anyway, it's interesting because you can see like it's one of the first big hits on you know the general data protection regulation where there was that much of a hit, that big of a fine. And this one was so big. The previous one was five hundred thousand pounds that was on Facebook on the whole Cambridge Analytica data scandal. So this one is, was it one, two, three, almost almost four times, about three and a half times bigger than what the last one was. So this is a by a large margin. What I found interesting as we're sitting here, as you were talking about giving us the analogy just a minute ago, is how there's ads showing up on this article and how well they've pegged me when I haven't entered anything in. So yesterday Get this. Now, me personally, I don't have a problem with this. I think it's good because these ads are very applicable. Yesterday, my family went out. We tried stand-up paddleboarding for the first time. A lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. So we posted some... 
No, not at all. I didn't fall. I didn't fall at all. Oh, no, not fall. Hurt. Do you hurt? Hurt. Oh, no. Soreness and stuff. A lot of people have. Yeah. Because it engages a whole bunch of different muscles. It does. Because you got to be like, you got to maintain your balance and stuff. But I found, I kind of like to be more, I like being on my knees and sitting down than standing up the whole time. So I kind of went back and forth a bunch. I, I found I was sitting more than I was standing. And part of that was because we were on the intercoastal and there a bunch of boats were going by. And so we get the waves and I was like, you know, I don't really want to care about the balance. I'm just here, here to chill. So we took some pictures and my wife posted them to Facebook and I got tagged on them and I saw them. And I swear I've seen, I haven't gone, I haven't done any searching. I didn't put anything like, I didn't go Google anything, stand up paddleboarding or SUP or any of that stuff. But because I was in pictures that were tagged with it, I don't, that I'm, I started to see ads on, on stand up paddleboards and apparently you can get like hard ones and then you can, or like fiberglass, like real, like, like surfboard style, but then you can also get them. They're inflatable. And all I'm getting now are ads nonstop on stuff. Yeah, Vicky is convinced that her phone is listening to her. <laughs> that, I know that sounds like really simple. I, I just absolutely roll in hysteria and laugh when she says, <laughs> but she's, she swears she doesn't do any searches for these things, but that, ads start popping up after she's spoken about them with her friends. And I'm like, honey, chances are either one of your friends is searching for something like that. And because of your proximity and because you're interacting with them on Facebook or whatever, they're doing inferences and pushing the stuff to you too. Or like you say, right? Like maybe it's image recognition and things as well. They're looking like, ooh, there's paddleboards in that photo. I'm advertising you paddleboards. That's pretty freaky. I mean, it was... What you don't think about doing, but that you're inferred your interests are inferred. Yeah, and these ads are nailing it because we loved it. And I was like, I wonder how much an inflatable one really is and what kind of deals you can get. And are there like, you know, the, I know there's really expensive ones, but there are also super cheap ones. And we're getting ready to go on a week-long vacation to the beach. And it's like, you know, how would it be like, am I spending, am I talking about spending like 500 bucks or am I talking about spending like 70 bucks? And I'm like, ah, just curious. And so, oh, okay. I just did a little test. I did a test for what is the first ad that pops up for me on Facebook. And the interesting thing is it's on point. So the first one is from NZXT, which is the hardware, you know, computer case. They make cases and fans and all that sort of stuff, which is hilarious because I own one of their cases. (laughs) So that's on point. They're trying to sell me some more stuff. And then the next one is the thing for selling art. And so I don't know where that one comes from. <laughs> but anyway. Mine's a little off too. Mine, actually mine's way off. My first one is for PowerWatch. <laughs> no, I'm not pregnant. Not that I know of. PowerWatch 2. First body heat powered, full power, full feature smartwatch that you never have to charge. Uh, not interested. And then the second one is scrolling solid cologne. You smell. Is that wow. what you're saying? Brutal. I... Yeah, we should move on. This is weird. <laughs> Speaking of data, there's an article that I'm linking to about senators in the US wanting to bring a new bill forward that puts a price to big tech on our data. So the theory goes, these senators, there's, there's a Democrat and a Republican that are teaming up to introduce legislation requiring the big firms to basically value and disclose value of that of the data that they have on you. So to be more open of what data they've got on you Mm -hmm. and then how much it's worth to them so you can make a more informed choice about whether you give them more data and so forth. This is just the US going down the path of GDPR again, I think. Yes. I think the disclosure part can't hurt anybody. Like I'd love to know know, a lot of these things. I don't know if I'd do anything about it, but maybe I'd make a more informed choice about not doing anything about it, something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure about the whole dollar value type stuff that seems up for debate yeah but it would be worthwhile like it would be interesting to know how much revenue do i make facebook a month yeah i guess the transparency would be nice i'm not going to knee jerk this one i'm gonna i I think about that yeah it's interesting right because imagine going to a site and going to log in and it goes cool we want your email address your birthday and your interests and that is worth two bucks a month to us and we'll pay you for it and then you've got to look at it and go, is me giving that data to the site worth two bucks a month? And at any stage, I can, I know this is this part is the fallacy, like is this part is where it all falls apart, right? 
when you delete your account, getting rid of that data. Like in theory, they should get rid of that data and, and it's no longer of value to them. And so it's removed. That part, like I can see the technical hurdles but actually being achievable. But in theory, that's how it would go, right? And then, and then I sit back and go, imagine this for news. Like, so remember the whole, there was a big movement around microtransactions around news, like mm-hmm. reading an article, it would cost you like 10 cents or something. Imagine going to the New York Times or Washington Post or whatever publication you happen to read and it saying, cool, you can either pay 10 bucks a month for a subscription, five bucks a month for a subscription, or, or we'll pay you a dollar a month and you can have a, an account, but in, respo- in, in return, you give us your, your interests, your browsing history, your birth date, your friends list, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think that would be a really interesting experiment to do like a sort of a social experiment to figure out like what are the results of that for, for a large number of people? What on average, how do the average people value their data? I suspect it's not very highly, except for people in the industry. I think they value it a lot more. Well, and so in, I guess for me too, it's one of those things, it's, it's similar to, maybe this isn't a fair analogy, but I think we have a bit of a, a vocal minority of people who like to flip out about data privacy and stuff. And I'm not saying that it's not an important thing, but I mean, understanding how it's used and how it's like this. Does it make sense for everybody to be able to vote on how the government spends all of our money? No, because not every cent, no, no, not every cent, but also probably not like that's why you have representatives who are also more educated on how things on how things are being appropriated. But well, sure. <laughs> anyway, we don't allegedly. Know. Well, <laughs> then, so we're all. I, I guess what is it? it that's in theory. And what is in reality is we're all voting on people to go be influenced by lobbyists to go vote on how they're going to spend our money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We should. Now we're, we're going to totally lose a contingent of our listeners if we go down this path. <laughs> <laughs> I keep my personal feelings about politics out of it. Yeah, but sure. I think there's a lot of bad actors that are out there who have done a bad job with this stuff. And I think it has given a lot of other people a bad, a bad rap for how they use on how they use some of the personal data, but I just think yes. it's an experiment to see how people value their data. Oh, I totally agree. And I would love to see the United States do something similar to what GDPR is like, but in a way that makes that makes sense and not that is done by a bunch of lobbyists that you want to do, you want to get out of this out of this hole? Out of this quagmire. Yeah, let's <laughs> if we're one of our great sponsors and then dive into a pix. CJ's Hyperfish automates the collection of user profile information from users in organizational directories such as Office 365, SharePoint, Active Directory, and HR systems. The secure service supports on-premises, hybrid, and online environments. Bring your directory to life at hyperfish.com. ACs Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. All right, I know you've got something good for us this week. Yeah. What do you got on the cards? <laughs> yeah. We are <laughs> we are 12 days away from the 50th anniversary of landing on the moon. And on July the 17th, PBS is going to make available both as a stream and also to be able to tune in and watch it. It's June 17th at 9 p.m. Eastern time or 8 p.m. Central time. Or what is it, 6 p.m. on the left coast of the U.S.? Six. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, six. So it's a film, and it's a, about, it's a film that seamlessly blends the Apollo mission audio featuring conversations with Neil, Buzz, and Michael Collins with new footage, NASA archive, and stunning CGI to recreate the first moon landing. You know, I wonder when they're going to stop running out of all this footage they haven't found before. It's been 50 years, and they keep <laughs> saying, I've got new unreleased footage. I mean, like... Is there somebody in the NASA archives who's like going, okay, now give them this. Okay, now give them this. We have to keep doing it because at one, one day that guy's not going to have a job anymore. Yep. I Actually, here's an interesting one. Dang, this should have been my pick. Oh, well. You've got a good pick. Oh, this is great. But So I read an article on the weekend that there was a guy that bought, I can't remember how many hundreds of data tapes from NASA during a NASA auction, like 30 years ago or something. Maybe, maybe 35 years ago. And on his goal was buy all these tapes and then sell them to the local TV stations that they could use the data tapes to re-record stuff with, right? Record over them. 
And his dad at the time said, don't sell those two boxes. And he held on to them and put them in his attic for 20 years or something. Anyway, it's recently turned out that on a few of those tapes, I don't know how many, experts now think that those are the original recordings of the moon landing straight off from the from the satellite feeds and all that sort of stuff. Or if not the originals, then, you know, the first copies or whatever. Like, they think they're the originals. They're of the best quality and that they've found to date in terms of, like, these tapes have been played twice. They've been wow. once when they were originally recorded. Sorry, three times. Once when they were originally recorded. It was That's the recording date, obviously. And they've been replayed twice. Once when this guy dug them out of a box and looked at them. And then the second time is when I think it's Sotheby's, the auction site, who are now auctioning them. They expect to get between one and a half to two million dollars for these things. Um, have have had experts sit and watch them to verify their authenticity. Interesting, eh? That's pretty cool. That's very you know cool. The original, they talk about how the original tapes went missing and all that. Yeah. They probably got re-recorded over. Turns out these are probably the tapes. That's really cool. That would have been a good pick. Yeah, I'll use it next week. You just got a sneak peek pick this week. About that. <laughs> I got it. I think I got it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. How about you? What do you got for us this week? Uh, Bitcoin mining done on the Apollo guidance computer. <laughs> this is cool. This is so cool. This is, cool. This is amazing. <laughs> so there's a team of folks that have, you know, the only working Apollo guidance computer left, or I, I don't know if NASA has any, you know, hidden away, but these guys have got one. And they've got this thing running. And so this guy talks, this guy, Ken Sheriff, talks about, and I quote, now that we have the world's only working AGC, I decided to write some code for it. Trying to mine Bitcoin on this 1960s computer seemed both pointless. And, oh my God, this is even a word I can't even pronounce. I was waiting to hear you say it. <laughs> Not anachronistic. Anachronistic. God, I don't even know what that means. Hold on, let's look it up. Somebody's going to poo-poo me. The long being. period other than being portrayed. So I had to give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to implement the Bitcoin hash algorithm in assembly code on this 15-bit computer. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't get the memo that it was either 8 or 16. (laughs) Apparently, he got it to work. And uh, he said it would take about a billion times the age of the universe to successfully mine a Bitcoin block. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. One hash takes 10.3 seconds. This is so cool. Isn't that interesting? I love it. And I just love it that they've got a disky hooked up to it and stuff. <laughs> I, I tell you what, like my life would be complete having one of these things in my home office. Yeah. Having a disky or having the Apollo guidance computer? Both. <laughs> you need both, right? You've got to oh, have both. I mean, I want my home security system to be a disky. The guidance co- Oh my gosh. <laughs> How cool that would be. <laughs> No, my mission in life is to become a a strange re- billionaire recluse with a hairless cat that has an Apollo guidance computer on their home office wall. <laughs> I wonder if this is the guy that does... So there's a, there's a series of posts or uh, videos on YouTube where these guys bought a... It wasn't a real Apollo guidance computer. It was one that was used in the simulators. They bought it as scrap. Like They paid, they paid for it in, in, in the weight of it. And they took it in a hotel room and these three or four guys were trying to bring it back to life. And they were testing everything out and make sure it worked and trying to run the, the landing program and all that stuff. It was, it was pretty slick. It yeah. looked, I wonder if these are the same guys. Yeah, possibly. I mean, there can't be that many of these things out, right? No. What an interesting guy. This guy, he, has, he attempted Bitcoin mining on a 55-year-old IBM 1401 punch card mainframe. He... <laughs> One of his claims to fame is he got six symbols added to the Unicode, including the Bitcoin symbol. Oh, nice. <laughs> Man, my only claim to fame is getting the time zone button into Outlook. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, you know when you go and... Oh, I know what it is. You know when you go create a meeting and then you can press the time zone button and it gives you the two drop downs besides yeah. push time? That was my idea. Oh, that's a great idea. I use that a lot. I was in New Zealand working for Microsoft at the time, 
trying to put a flight in my calendar. And you know the itineraries, they always have the takeoff time being in the uh-huh. local time zone and then the landing time also being in the local time zone where you land. And I couldn't be, I was infuriated trying to figure this out for some flights in the States and put it in my calendar to block off that time. And I was like, man, it should be, it would be so much easier if I could just put the start time in Outlook meetings with the time zone next to it and the end time with the time zone next to it. And so I looked, I looked up in Doctor Who, which is the internal people to, and looked up the person who works on Outlook calendaring and I emailed him the spec and I was like, here's what I think you should do. And the guy came back and was like, man, we're so slammed for this release. I think it was like Office 2010. No, it can't have been. must have been earlier than that. must have been... Seven? Seven, maybe. Yeah, maybe it was seven. And he goes, but we'll try and get it in. And I didn't hear from him for probably nine months. And then it got a thing back going, just check the code in. <laughs> That's too cool. Like, Woo-hoo. <laughs> I didn't write it, but I wrote the spec for it. Ah. Exactly how I put it in the doc. I should find that email, actually. That would be really interesting. That would be cool. That's awesome, man. Anywho. So, yeah, but I'd rather have the Bitcoin symbol <laughs> in Unicode. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. I think it might be the same guy, by the way, because they're talking about like restoring the Apollo guidance computer and the memory modules and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's part of that same. I think he's part of that same team. God, I'm looking at his I'm looking at his bio. This is not yeah, his bio. This guy's got a this got a crazy history, crazy geeky history. I wonder if this is when we lose all of our listeners. Pretty much, this is when we waffle on. Anyway, let's close up. Great episode. Hi, <laughs> 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 right, dude. Have a good one. You too. <laughs> Did you like this episode? Please tweet about it and drop a five star review in iTunes. Word of mouth recommendations are the most effective ways for us to grow the show. We'd really appreciate it. If you have a question for us, go to microsoftcloudshow.com slash questions, where you can submit it as text or record it as an MP3 or WAV file and provide a link so we can play your question on the show. Our theme music is brought to you by Keith Ritchie. For more information on Keith's music, head to music.kritchie.com. You can subscribe to us in iTunes and Google Play Store by searching for Microsoft Cloud Show or via RSS at microsoftcloudshow.com, where you'll also find show notes of each episode. You can also find us on Facebook searching for Microsoft Cloud Show or on Twitter at MS Cloud Show. And finally, sign up for our mailing list by heading over to our website and entering your email to interact with us, participate in upcoming interviews, and other cool stuff. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.